Well, good evening, Wednesday night Bible study group and everyone else that's joining us online now. Uh, just so you're aware, I've set an alarm for 45 minutes uh, to respect your time and mine. I do want to start with some prayer requests, as we usually do. Uh, thank you to those of you who responded to my text that I sent out uh, for our usual group uh, for prayer requests, and I want to share those with you as we begin. Uh, if you would, let's be in prayer for uh, Judy Ullery, uh, Judy, uh, her friend Holly Glidewell, that had had uh, surgery over the new year. Well, she is moving to her home state now uh, with four aneurysms. And she's moving to her home state so that her family can help with her two girls. So uh, Judy asked that we would be in prayer for Holly and for the girls. And then keep Judy in your prayer uh, as well. She has some personal needs that we can pray for. Uh, as well, if you'd remember Stephanie Quisenberry in your prayer, she has two co co-workers now that are quarantined with a cough. But of course, Stephanie and others are, are part of that crew that are visiting homes and at risk uh, for the virus. And so they need our covering of uh, prayer. Uh, and as well, pray for her family and for her friend Skylar. Uh, Skylar's going through a difficult time now in her life, and she could use our prayer. Also, our brother Ken Markham is having a stress test a week from Friday. And so we need to remember him in our prayers. Uh, the medication he stopped to be prepared for the next stage of his health care uh, has, uh, once it stopped, it started to cause some other issues. So we definitely need to be in prayer for Ken. Uh, Miss Pat has gone through some medicine changes after talking with OSU uh, and, and the neurology department there for her tremors. So let's keep Miss Pat in, in prayer as well. Also, uh, at church, Don Lifite, uh, his wife Susan, came home Tuesday, and she still has some blurred vision, and she's unsteady on her feet, so we can definitely continue to be in prayer for uh, Don and, and Susie Lifite as well. Then I'm going to ask that you be in prayer for uh, my family. Even as I record this, I've got some wonderful servants outside that are digging up our leech bed and septic system. We've had an issue, so... Uh, Craig Jenneret and Robert Seaver and Don Mitchum are out there. Uh, even Matt Schumann and uh, others are out helping to, to manage what's going on. Just praying for an inexpensive fix to a, an issue we're having. And then, of course, we want to pray for our nation, for our leaders, uh, for all that's going on with this uh, coronavirus, with the isolation we're facing uh, for their wisdom and for our safety as, as well. And so I'm just going to ask as well that you would remember uh, those that are at risk at home right now. Uh, certainly we remember Doug and Jean Fisher and all that they're going through. Uh, we remember Connie Schumann and the battle that she's going through, still having some weakness issues but sounding much better. So we keep her in prayer. And, and I'm just going to ask that you and I go to the Father together right now. Uh, Lord... It may seem like I'm rushing through things because I know our time is always limited. And yet, Father, today is April 1st, but it's anything but April's Fool's Day because we know who you are. Father, you exist in perfect love. Your word is perfect. Uh, Jesus, you are the Son of God, and you willingly died on the cross for the penalty of our sinfulness. And we trust you for absolute forgiveness, for mercy and grace. And we trust you for a resurrected life of power in Jesus because you are our Lord and you are our King. And I just ask that you would guide each of us in your wisdom 
and your counsel to be transformed, uh, to be more in your image of holiness and, and just nature and beauty. Uh, Father, you are good and, and you are truth. So we place uh, ourselves, we place this nation, Lord, and humble ourselves before you in your hands. We need your care. We need your guidance. And Father, I just ask you would watch over this nation as we repent of our sins and return to you because you are uh, the only source, the only cure that this world has for all that, that we suffer from. We love you. We bless you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we finished up in Romans 14. And I don't know if you realize that we only have two chapters of Romans left to go. Uh, and I'm startled how quickly we've come through the book of Romans. Uh, we've had a lot of interruptions, uh, not notwithstanding the most recent. But let's just jump right into Romans 15. And we're going to start with the first six verses and talk about some of the marks of what it means to be a Christian fellowship. Romans 15.1 says, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives the endurance and the encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to Paul's writing there, I say amen. Um, Michael Bird once wrote, Imagine a group of Christian, uh, Gentile Christians in Rome, maybe a mixture of slaves and artisans sitting at the back of a leather worker shop one night, huddled around a candle and singing a hymn, recounting their day and sharing what little food they had. One of them is a slave, is a scribe, and he's able to read from a notebook a few verses from Psalm 69. And then walks Herodian, a Jewish freedman that had returned to Rome from Alexandria some weeks ago. Herodian turns to Rufus, the leader of the house church, and he says, Greetings and peace. Rufus hadn't seen Herodian for six years, and when they last met, there had been a ferocious debate about drinking wine. Herodian had visited Rufus's shop to explain why drinking pagan wine was wrong, and it was defiled by its use in their worship and libations, and so God-worshippers must avoid it or risk God's judgment. Well, Rufus wasn't convinced, and Herodian had stormed off, cursing Rufus and his pagan drink. But now Rufus looks at Herodian... He looks weak and malnourished. Perhaps his master has cast him out for his Christian faith. But everyone in the group looks to Rufus to see what he will do. And Rufus rises. He kisses Herodian on the cheek, sits him down, and gives him some bread, a few turnips, and he pours him a cup of water. He looks at Herodian and he says, Eat, for we all belong to the same Lord. I think that's a good illustration of why Paul wrote Romans. As we begin Romans 15, Paul's still dealing with the assignments, the job, the obligations of those within the Christian fellowship to one another, and especially with the duty of the stronger to the weaker brother. Our fellowship should carry some distinctions. It should carry the distinction of the consideration of its members for each other. It's a significant thing that when Paul speaks of bearing the weaknesses of others, 
He uses the same word used of Christ bearing his cross. Bastetzain. Although their thoughts should be not for themselves, but for each other. I'm always reminded of Philippians 2, verse 3, where it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Don't look just to your own interest. Look to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. That kind of thoughtfulness is something that we always have to work at because unless we're intentional, it decays into this easygoing, sentimental tepidness of of concern. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, said he took the most trying place in the whole field of battle. Our Savior stood where the fray was the hottest. He didn't seek to be among his disciples as a king in the midst of his troops, guarded and protected in the time of strife. But he exposed himself to the fiercest part of all the conflict. What Jesus did, we should do as his followers. No one of us considering himself as his own interest, but all of us considering our brothers and sisters and the cause of Christ in general. Verse 2 especially tells us that our efforts are, are to be directed for. They're always designed for the other person's good and to build them up. You know, I have a song on my playlist by Chris Daughtry that tells of a relational rift between a a man and a woman that's often reflected in how we love each other in the church. And it says, I'm sinking inside. The mast and lines are broken down tonight. I swallow my pride, but I'm still drowning in the ocean. And it's tearing my heart open. We're high, then we're low. It's yes, then it's no. We're changing like the tides. But I need you, and I want you. And I guarantee that we can make it out alive. Because I don't want to fight no more, even when the waves get rough. I don't want to see the day that we say we've had enough. And I don't want to fight this war, bullets coming off of our lips. But we stick to our guns and love like battleships. You know, when we seek to obey the commands of verses 1 and 2, we find a brother or sister one much more easily to a fuller faith by surrounding them in an atmosphere of grace and forgiveness than by attacking them with a battery of of criticism. And that should mark our fellowship. And it should also carry a distinction of an eager study of the Scripture. And I hope you caught that in verse 4 when he said, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. Um, There is an endlessly pure and deep well of encouragement in the Bible. And if you're not getting into the Word during this time of isolation, friends, you are missing out on some great blessing. There's also a clear view of God's narrow pathway. You know, Scriptures give us the record of God's dealing with the Jewish nation and demonstrates for us it's always better to be right with God and to suffer than to be wrong with men and to avoid trouble. The history of Israel is a demonstration in the events of history that ultimately it goes well with the good and disastrous for the wicked. Scripture demonstrates in the end it's the only way for everything that makes life worth living in time and eternity. It gives us the great and precious promises of God. I always liked the practice of of the minister, Alexander White. Uh, Every home that he would visit, he would leave people with a verse of the Bible. And after he shared it, he would leave and say, Now put that under your tongue and suck on it like a sweet mint. Uh, I kind of like that because these promises are the promises of God who never breaks his word. 
And in these ways, Scripture gives to a man who studies it comfort in his sorrow, encouragement in his struggle, and, and joy in the journey. Well, the, uh, another distinction of our fellowship is huge, and it really begins in verse 5 when he says, May God who gives endurance and encouragement uh, give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had. Uh, when it talks about endurance, our fellowship should carry the distinction of what the British would call the Dunkirk spirit. Uh, if you saw the movie Dunkirk or you know the story, uh, we would call it backbone, resolve, or, or metal. Uh, endurance is an attitude of a godly cardiovascular heart for life. Paul uses two great Greek words here, hupomones for endurance, and it's far more than just patience. It is the triumphant adequacy that can cope with life. It's a strength that does not accept things, but which, in accepting them, transforms them into glory. And he also connects this tenacious resolve to the word paraklesis, which is encouragement. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in coming alongside it to give us power, to give us encouragement. And then the Christian fellowship should always be marked by hope. You know, we, we are always called to be realist as believers, but never pessimists. And the Christian hope is not a cheap hope. It's not some immature hope that's optimistic because it doesn't see the difficulties or it's not encountered the experiences of life. George Frederick Watts, he once painted two versions of his famous uh, picture of hope back in 1886. The first was a star in the distance, uh, which is in his private collection. And the second, more famous of the two, was painted after the death of his granddaughter. It shows a blindfolded woman sitting atop a globe, cut, clutching a wooden lyre that has only one string left. Instead of using the more obvious allegorical device of the light of a star to signify hope, he uses music. This figure leans in towards her instrument and tiredly plucks its remaining string, resting in its resonance. And perhaps the mood of the painting is too melancholy for you to suggest hope. Where's the rising sun on the horizon? Where is the, the soaring bird or the blooming flower? It's not there. Instead, it's the suggestion of a faint song, invisible, intangible. We tune our ears to it, and it sustains us. And those who are forced by circumstances to hope are in a misty, dark, and uncertain place. And Watts knew that well. He was there. But his portrayal was raw, it was honest. It avoided platitudes. When we hope, we don't always move out of the darkness or the mist. We sit in it, but we incline ourselves toward the most favorable of possibilities. The 20th century theologian and art critic G.K. Chesterton discussed that painting in one of his books, and he says at first glance, you might be likely to think the title is wrong, that it's not hope, that the painting should be more aptly titled despair. But if you look at it longer, you might perceive the truth that there's something in man which is always apparently on the eve of disappearing, but never disappears. An assurance which is always saying farewell and yet illimitably lingers. It's a string that's always stretched to snapping, but never snaps. He perceives the queerest and most delicate thing in us, the most fragile, the most fantastic. It is, in truth, the backbone, and it's indestructible. The personified hope of the painting is it's dim and delicate and yet immortal, indestructible and not destroyed. 
Her aim is not hopelessness or despair. If it was, she would put down the liar, considering it no longer capable of making music. But she keeps on clutching it and relishes one more beautiful note that sounds from its string. And sometimes that's a great picture of hope for us, isn't it? We're down to our last nerve, down to our last dream. Reminds me of a photo taken by Julian Adnan for National Geographic of the little Iraqi boy playing a violin in a music hall that has just been destroyed by war and and looting and neglect. The Christian hope has seen everything, has endured everything for 2,000 years and still has not despaired because it believes in God. It's not hope in the human spirit. It's not hope in human goodness or in government. It's not hope in human achievement or discovery. It's the hope that comes only in the power of God. That's why I know as believers in Christ, we'll get through this time together. Well, the Christian fellowship should also be marked by a glorious harmony. Paul said in verse 6, with one mind and one voice, he says, I I want you to glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Spurgeon says, let's all endeavor to pitch our tune according to Christ's keynote. And the nearer we get to that, the less discord we will have in the sound of the church. However modern or clean a church might be, however perfect its worship or its music, however generous its giving or friendly people are to you on the first visit, that church has lost the very first essential of Christian fellowship if it's lost harmony. Now, that's not to say there's not going to be differences of opinion. It's not to say there'll be no argument or debate. What it means is, is that those in the Christian fellowship, they've solved the problem of living together. They'll be quite sure that Christ unites them greater by far than the differences that divide them. Then the Christian fellowship should be marked by praise. Uh, is, Is your voice one of complaining, of discontent, or is it one of joy and thanksgiving? I'll guarantee you one type is particularly echoed as Paul and Silas's chains fell off in prison, and it wasn't the negative voice. I'll never forget a wedding that I did for a young couple years ago. Uh, They worked at Michiana. It was a Christian service camp between Michigan and Indiana. And they got married in a garden, and they came down uh, down the aisle to friends that were playing guitar and violin and bajimba and singing all the songs. Um, But the one they came down the aisle to was called uh, The Happy Song by Delirious. And I thought, that was fantastic. What a praiseworthy song. It says, I could sing unending long songs of how you saved my soul. I could dance a thousand miles because of your great love. My heart is bursting, Lord, to tell of all you've done, of how you changed my life and wiped away the past. And I want to shout it out from every rooftop sing, for now I know God is for me, not against me. Oh, I could sing unending songs of how you saved my soul. And I could dance a thousand miles because of your great love. And everybody's singing now because we're happy. Everybody's dancing now because we're so happy. If only we could see your face and see you smiling over us. And unseen angels celebrate, for joy is in this place. You know, the Christians should enjoy life because we enjoy God. We carry that secret within us because we are sure that God is working all things together for our good and for his glory. 
And the heart of the matter really was back in verse 3. Uh, you know, the Christian fellowship takes its lead. We take our inspiration and our dynamic from Jesus Christ. He's the one that came not to live to please himself. And, and the quote that Paul uses, I don't know if you knew this, it's from Psalm 69, 9. And Paul only uses a half of that verse when he says, The insults of those who insult you fall on me. I'll guarantee you, you're probably more familiar with the first half of that verse from Psalm where it says, zeal for your house consumes me. Jesus used those words on another occasion. When the Lord of glory chose to serve others instead of to please himself, he set the pattern which everyone who seeks to be his follower must accept. Well, we go on in, in, in Romans 15 and we start in verse 7 now in the next section here. And we begin again with a command. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I'll praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again, it says, Rejoice, ye Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. Again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will rise over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. One more verse. Verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, let me read that last verse again. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of his Holy Spirit. Paul makes one last appeal to all the people within the church that we should be bound into one, that those who are weak in the faith, those who are strong in the faith should be united in one body, that Jew and Gentile find a common fellowship. We may have many differences, but there's only one Christ. And the bond of unity is our common loyalty to him. Christ's work was for Jew and Gentile alike. He was born a Jew and was subject to the Jewish law. That was in order that all the great promises given to the fathers of the Jewish race might come true, and that salvation might come first to the Jew. But Jesus came not just for the Jew, but for Gentiles also. And to prove this, this idea of togetherness, Paul cited four passages from the Old Testament. Now, Paul had the Hebrew, he had the Aramaic to work with in languages, but he used the Greek version, the common tongue of the day of the Old Testament. It was called the Septuagint to translate from. And he quotes from Psalm 18.50 and Deuteronomy 32.43. Psalm 117.1 and Isaiah 11.10. And in all of them, what Paul finds is a forecast of the reception of the Gentiles into the faith. He's convinced that just as Jesus Christ came into the world to save all men, so the church must welcome all men, no matter their differences. And Paul once again goes on to sound the note of the Christian faith. The great words of the Christian faith flash out one after another. He says, first, there's hope. It is so easy in the light of experience or despair of oneself to forget that. 
It's easy in the light of events to despair of the world. You know, the story was told of an emergency church meeting that was opened in prayer by the chairman of the elders, and he addressed God as God, the Almighty, the Eternal God, whose grace is sufficient for all things. And when the prayer was finished, the business part of the meeting began, and the chairman said, Well, folks, the the situation in this church is completely hopeless. There is nothing that can be done. Now, either his prayer was composed of empty and meaningless words, or his statement was untrue. If there is Christ, there is hope. It's long ago been said that there are no hopeless situations. There are only men who've grown hopeless about them. There's something in Christian hope that not all the shadows of the world can quench. Something that is the conviction that God is alive. That God is on the throne. That God is at work. And no man is hopeless so long as there's the grace of Jesus Christ. No situation is hopeless so long as there's the power of God. Then Paul says there's, there's joy. There's all the difference in this world between pleasure and joy. And Christians need to be clear in, in how we define that. You know, Billy Joel used to sing a song that said, I'd, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. But he was working from a deep misconception of Christian joy. Some people live as if any pleasure is only a pause between two pain. But Christian joy is not dependence on outside things. It's the source in our consciousness of the presence of the living word. The certainty that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in him. Then Paul would remind us again there's peace. I don't know about you, but I meet people all the time that are constantly looking for the untroubled life. And a lot of people would say serenity, (laughs) that's a dream. That's a lost possession. And there's two things that make that impossible. First, there's inner tension. Men live distracted lives. Uh, Women live distracted lives. And the word for distract, it literally means to pull apart. Men and women are walking civil wars. Uh, There's only one way out of this, and that's for self to abdicate its throne for Jesus Christ. And when Christ sits on the throne of our lives, when he controls, the tension is gone. Then there's worry about external things. We are often haunted by the chances and the changes of the world and of our lives. We are characteristically a a creature that look forward to guess and fear. The only end of that worry is the utter conviction that whatever happens, God's hand is never going to cause his child a needless tear. Did you understand that? God's hand will never cause his child a needless tear. Things will happen that we don't understand, to be sure. But if we are confident enough of God's love, we can accept with peace even those things that wound the heart and still baffle the mind. Then there is power. Paul would say uh, that the power of the Holy Spirit is available to each of us. And power is the supreme need of men and women. It's not that we don't know the right thing. The trouble is in the doing of it. The trouble is to cope with and to conquer things, things that we can never do alone. It's only when the surge of Christ's power fills our weakness that we can master life as we ought. By ourselves, we can do nothing. And I wonder sometimes, when will we learn that, that only with God are all things possible? We can only go so far in our own power. You know, a car 
A car can't run without fuel. But a car can't create its own fuel. And likewise, we can't run without the fuel of the Holy Spirit. And yet we cannot create that. God must give himself. The good news of the gospel is he has. And he does. And he'll continue to do so. He does it in so many ways. One way is through the reading of Scripture. And Paul said that already in verse 4. Bible's not just some historical record. It leads us to the living God. We can look to it to find instruction on how to live as powerful, holy people. And we can find encouragement and hope. Well, then I want you to see how, how the words reveal the man, beginning in verse 14. The words reveal the man. He said, I myself have convinced my brothers and sisters that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. Yet I've written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again. Because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, he gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. And I won't venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I've said and done, by the power of signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I can't say it right, (laughs) I fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It's been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it's written, those who are not told about him will see. Those who have not heard will understand. That's why I've been often hindered from coming to you. I think there's very few passages that reveal uh, the heart of Paul and Paul's character better than this. He's coming to the end of his letter, and he's wishing to prepare the ground for the visit he hopes to soon pay to Rome. We see something at least of his secret in winning souls. See, Paul first reveals himself as a man of tact. He's not rebuking. He's not nagging the church at Rome or speaking to them like some frustrated teacher. He tells them he's only reminding them of what they already well know and assures them that he's certain that they got it in them to provide outstanding service to each other and to their Lord. He was much more interested in what a man could be than in what a man was. You know, I've always liked what Stephen Covey said. Treat a man as he is, and he'll always remain as he is. Treat a man as he can and should be, and he will become as he can and should be. I once heard that Michelangelo began to carve a huge and shapeless block of marble, and he said his goal was to release the angel imprisoned in the stone. And Paul was like that. He didn't want to knock a man down and out. He didn't want to criticize to cause pain. He spoke the truth in love, with honesty and with severity, but always because he wanted to enable a person to be, become what they could be. And in verse 16, the only glory that Paul claimed was that he was a minister of, or a servant of Christ. You know, the word that he uses there is the word uh, leturgon, leturgon. It's a great word. Uh, In ancient Greece, there were certain state duties that sometimes were assigned, and then sometimes they were voluntarily shouldered by men who loved their country. And there were five of these voluntary services that every patriotic citizen could undertake. Uh, The Leitergon could provide a choir. 
They could, uh, at Greek Festival, they, they had the famous torch races that we still get uh, the uh, passing the baton races from. And to win one of those races was a great honor. And there were men who, at their own expense, would select and support and train a team to represent their part of town. That was a later gone. Uh, a later gone, also on occasions, there were groups that met together to share in a common meal. And a generous later gone could uh, undertake the task of meeting the budget at such a gathering. Then sometimes ambassadors would be sent uh, from an embassy to another city. And there were men who voluntarily defrayed the cost of that embassy. That could be a later gone. And then sometimes later gone, there was the triarchia. Uh, Greece had one of the greatest naval powers of the ancient world. And one of the most patriotic things a citizen or a man could do was voluntarily assume the expense of maintaining a trireme or a warship for a whole year. It would be like you or me paying for a year's service of the USNS Comfort in New York City's harbor uh, to serve as a hospital. You see, that's the background of this word later gone. And Paul said, that's the role God has called me to. It's the word that we get liturgy from. Now, liturgies are something you, you may be familiar hearing if you've been involved in the Eastern Orthodox Church or Catholic Church, uh, Reformed, Lutheran, Anglican, or United Methodist Church. They still follow a liturgy. Uh, some Eastern churches still refer to a divine liturgy to, to denote the Lord's Supper. Uh, but the word always has this background of a generous service. And just as a man in the ancient days laid his fortune on the altar of service for his beloved Greece, for his beloved Athens, and counted it his only glory, so Paul laid his everything on the altar of the service of Christ. And he was proud to be a servant of his master. Paul saw himself in the scheme of things as an instrument in the hands of Christ. He didn't talk about what he'd done. He talked about what Christ had done with him. He never said of anything, look, look what I've done. Rather, he would say, look what Christ used me to do. He was always humble, always honoring his, his heavenly Father. It was told that the, the change in the life of Dwight L. Moody came when he went to a meeting and he heard a preacher say, if only one man will give himself entirely and without reserve to the Holy Spirit, what might the Holy Spirit do with him? And Moody said to himself, Why should I not be that man? It's when a man ceases to think of what he can do, and he begins to think about what God can do with him, that things begin to happen. And then Paul's ambition was really to be a pioneer. He had preached the gospel in an area that encompassed literally one million square miles. <laughs> no printing press. No, no modern mode of travel, no FedEx, no Amazon, or so on. And perhaps not everybody in that million square mile heard Paul, but the Holy Spirit had the gospel spoken to those that God wanted to hear it. The area was fully evangelized, and that was a promise of peace. It was told that when Livingston uh, volunteered as a missionary with the London Missionary Society, they asked him, where would you like to go? And he said, anywhere so long as it's forward. When he reached Africa, he was haunted by the smoke of a thousand villages when he saw them in a distance. 
It was Paul's ambition to carry the good news of God to men who had never heard it. He took his text from Isaiah 52.15 to tell his aim. So we may sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. And Paul gives a glimpse into his present and future plans. And looking at the time now, I think that's probably a good time to go ahead and stop and close in prayer. And we will pick up uh, next week in verse 22 of chapter 15 and do chapters 15 and 16. So let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I just want to bless you again for the gift of your word. There are so many that have not seen, uh, that do not know you. Father, there's so many that are watching Christians now to see how we respond to the crisis that's marking our, our nation. And Father, I ask that you help us give a, a faithful example of what a wonderful Savior you are, what a wonderful God you are, and how our trust in you is what's leading the way. God, I thank you for being the ultimate source of peace and counsel and strength and hope. Father, as we are connected to you, we find a pleasant life no matter what we are deprived of here. We find a cause to say thank you for the food that we have, for the shelter above our heads, for the church family we have. And God, I just pray that this time uh, will make us more grateful for the many things that we often take for granted because you have been so good to us. Lord, I ask that you expose in our hearts the things that need to be rooted out, the things that need to be cleared and cleaned so that we can follow you and pursue you with holiness. We love you. And Father, I call upon your name in all this, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless each of you, and Lord willing, uh, you'll tune in this weekend for the message on uh, Sunday where we will be turning towards the Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, only two weeks away from Easter. And I just want to make sure your hearts, wherever they are, uh, whatever door they may be behind, whatever mask uh, they may be behind, I, I just want to make sure that your hearts are ready to worship the risen Lord and Savior. Until then, God bless. <music>